This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 8, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, staff writer Bob Service talks about the big news in DNA origami. It's gotten bigger and cuter. David Grimm will be back next week. Also this week, Philip Cook joins us to discuss his policy forum on gun control research. What can science tell us about the effects of open carry laws and links between domestic violence and gun control? Now we have Bob Service, staff writer for Science. He's here to talk about a piece he wrote on scaling up DNA origami. Okay, so what is DNA origami? The idea is to make objects out of DNA. So some shape, a ball or a cube or something that you can then use to do something with. There's a couple of different ways to do it. The way that was invented a while back was you take, you make one very long strand of DNA. And if you recall, DNA is made up of four different nucleotide bases, A's, G's, C's, and T's. And so when you design your long strand, you dial in a particular sequence of bases. The long strand is called a scaffold strand. Then people create many small strands called staple strands. And the staple strands have complementary bases that will bind to specific regions in that long scaffold strand. So I'm imagining a millipede right now. So you have a really long backbone and lots and lots of little legs. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, they they start out separate, right? The legs start out to be separate from the scaffold strand. So they're not one thing initially. But you put them all into solution together and the complementary parts line up. So one half of a staple would line up with one piece of a scaffold and the other half of that first staple would line up with another part of the scaffold. And when it does, it pulls those two pieces together to be close by. And then you just keep adding more and more staples and you can get that long scaffold strand to fold up into whatever shape that you've designed it to. Right? Okay. Okay. So that's one approach. And then another approach that was developed uh, back in 2012 is you don't use the long scaffold strand. In this case, all you do is you use a bunch of different staples that are designed to fold up into the shape of a small brick. They call them DNA bricks. Think of them like a Lego. And then you can design those separate little Lego bricks to connect to each other and then build up big structures from there. 
now the news here is that the DNA origami, these folded things, are going from kind of a small size to a big size, right. 20 times as big. But, you know, how, how big is big? What, what size was it to start with and, and what, what's the new breakthrough? Right. So the, the old versions of DNA origami, you could make things on the order of, say, 100 nanometers, which is very small. And even the stuff that's 20 times larger, those are also still very small. These are all microscopic features, but it's much larger than it used to be. So now these are on the order of approaching 2 million nucleotides in one structure. What is that the size of? Like, right. What so else that's would about you... the size of a virus. I mean... Okay. So we're not seeing this with our naked eye. We're not seeing this with our, with our naked eye. But interestingly, it now enables you to make objects out of DNA that are on the same sort of size scale as the features that you can write with computer lithography. So if, you, if you're designing computer chips or all kinds of things like that. So it's kind of an open question how this would be integrated with electronics, but people have coded these, these origami pieces. People have recruited other molecules to them. Is that going to be kind of what happens with these things as they get bigger? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can use them as templates to coat them with, say, metals or plastics or things like that. You can also make certain flat shapes, and then you can use those as what they would call masks for etching electronics or something like that. So people have done a lot of things with them. But one of the challenges is it's hard to make enough DNA to sort of make it useful on a human scale. Uh, it's still pretty expensive. So, And that's, that's another one of the advances that, get, that was talked about this week. We're still talking about making basically something the size of a virus. Why is it so expensive? Yeah, so the, in both of the techniques that we've talked about, both of the origami techniques use these staple strands to link things together or to build the bricks or what have you. And the, the traditional way those staple strands are made are by DNA synthesizers. So these are machines that basically you just dial in the sequence of mm -hmm. DNA letters you want, and they go ahead and chemically produce that. To do that costs on the order of about $120,000 per gram of DNA. Wow. So one of the applications people have thought about using for, for DNA origami is, okay, can I make a three-dimensional ball that's hollow? And if I can, can I put uh, some therapeutic drug molecule inside and then deliver it to, say, cancer tissue and try to kill cancer cells or something like that? That's a great idea, but if you need to make large amounts of of, of these little mm -hmm. capsules to deliver large amounts of drugs for you know people on a human scale, you would be synthesizing many, many grams per person. That does sound like a challenge, but the ball shape is pretty simple. There are more complicated shapes that are also being made here. For example, for some reason, they decided to build teddy bears. Can you tell us why? Well, because they could. Okay. <laughs> These are researchers at Harvard that uh, take the approach of, using, of making the DNA bricks, and then they assemble lots of bricks together into a giant cube or a relatively giant cube like 30,000 of these bricks they can put together in a single cube. And then what they did for their approach, rather than make the teddy bear, they made 
a void in the center of the cube that's the shape of a teddy bear. So it's you imagine a little cube with a cutout in the center of oh. a teddy bear. Or, you know, they can make lots of other shapes too. It's an arbitrary shape, so you can make whatever you want. So this is getting at the idea that they can really build fine detail into these structures. Absolutely. And, and yet, on a scale that is just huge compared to the actual DNA molecule itself. It's so strange. We're talking about very big and very small we all are. at the same time. But that's that's the that's the real key of nanotechnology because it's been a dream among nanotechnologists for a long time to build materials up from the bottom up, from mm -hmm. on the molecular scale. So you link the first molecule to the second molecule to the third molecule, and it's all pre-programmed in. It's all dialed in, so they just assemble themselves. So that's been the dream, and they've been able to do parts of that on the very small scale for a long time. But now they're actually getting to the scale that humans can take advantage of in a real way. And what's the next step? Are we just going to get 20 times bigger than what we have now, saying that price uh, was not a concern. Well, so one of the advances that was made by a research group in Germany uh, that was reported this week is on a new way to synthesize DNA much more cheaply. So again, we're talking about these small staple strands that are typically made by a synthesizer, DNA synthesizer, and that's the costly part. They've come up with a way to use viruses that infect bacteria to make whatever staple strands they want and make large numbers of different strands all at the same time and then release them all at the same time. So they can basically mass produce these staple strands now for much cheaper. And so that is probably going to be on the order of 500 times cheaper than the old approach. So instead wow. of it being $100,000 or $120,000 per gram, it might be on the order of a couple hundred dollars per gram or maybe a little bit more. And that begins to open the door towards much more uses for, for this technology. I think one of the big ones that's likely to come first is integration with conventional electronics. So you can imagine now that the size scale of these two are becoming comparable, that mm -hmm. then DNA origami might be able to detect biomarkers or particular snippets of DNA, say, associated with cancer or something like that, and then have those tied to electronic devices or photonic devices that can then read out the signature and tell you and create new diagnostic tools. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bob. It was really an interesting story. You're welcome. Bob Service is a staff writer for science. Support for the Science Magazine podcast and the following message comes from Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. With Wonder, individual investors like you can now invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S., earning up to 7.5% annually and helping to fight global climate change. Wonder's newest fund, Wonder Capital 5, has raised more than $3 million from investors in its first 30 days. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com science and commit your investment before January 1st to take advantage of Wonder's holiday special, Zero Investor Fees. That's wondercapital.com science. And be sure to act now because starting in 2018, new investments will be subject to fees. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism.
Support for the Science Magazine podcast comes from BioRad Laboratories. At the forefront of groundbreaking research, BioRad Laboratories has been advancing discovery for over 60 years. Scientific discovery can be miraculous, but nothing is ever simple. We've all heard and talked about the breakthroughs in gene editing using CRISPR-Cas9, but without the right tools, gene editing still takes a lot of trial and error to just get what you want. From flow cytometry to automated cell imaging and counting to tried and true transfection, BioRad has what you need for rapid success. To find the many tools available to you, check out BioRad's CRISPR toolbox at bio-rad.com slash define your flow. With BioRad's improved gene editing workflows, you can increase your success using CRISPR-Cas9. You can access ready-made protocols and resources, stay up on current research, and you can even experience CRISPR in virtual reality. Find every tool you need online in the CRISPR toolbox at bio-rad.com slash define your flow. Now we have an interview with Philip Cook. This week he writes a policy forum about using research to understand the impacts of gun control policy on gun violence. We also have in the magazine this week a piece of research that suggests after the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012, more guns were purchased in the U.S. and more people were shot as a consequence. This seems like a really striking and unusual finding. Why are results like this so rare? I think the fundamental problem is that policy is changed in the real world and not in the mm -hmm. laboratory. So we often lack a good control group. And the debate often is not about whether a particular policy or regulation is effective. It comes down to the question about what would have happened to the homicide rate or the violent crime rate in the absence of that regulation. And if we don't have a good way of estimating that, then there is bound to be a continuing argument about it. I think that's what we've seen, that legislators and regulators go ahead and change policy as they see fit, but not with an idea to doing it in a controlled experiment. And we are left with weaker evidence than we might have otherwise. Sometimes, though, there is a natural event or something that comes along that allows us to really nail down a particular effect. And if we take advantage of that, then the result is we can push the frontier forward and really feel like we're making scientific progress. Right. And looking at the history of it, I was reading this over and I was like, this is guns, drugs, and money. So one of the really big problems has been the crack epidemic that hit the U.S. and its influence on violent crime. Can you talk about how that's hampered our understanding of the effects of gun regulation? So when there's a new uh, gun regulation put into place that's likely to have an effect of saving a few lives or a few hundred lives at best, that is enough to make it worthwhile in many cases. But what we saw during the crack epidemic was that the violent crime rates were extremely volatile. And so there was this epidemic pattern for 10 years that made it more difficult to identify and to measure relatively small effects of regulation. Talking about the money part of this, that was also lacking for a few decades there, but that's changing now. Where is the new money coming from, if not the government? 
There is some money coming in from private foundations, and we have a remarkable case of the state of California deciding that it is going to start funding research on gun violence. I think the most important thing that has changed, though, is not increased funding. The important thing that's changed has been increased interest on the part of academics. And a lot of social scientists in particular can pick and choose about what they're going to do their research on. And uh, obviously the gun violence issue rose to the surface with the leadership of President Obama in in, uh, 2012 and thereafter. I think that what we see now is a lot of research going on with little or no funding, but just, Mm. just being conducted by scientists who have a choice about what they work on. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the results of that research. You list three areas where you think that the results are pretty conclusive that policy has having an effect on behavior and reducing violent crime or increasing violent crime. So let's take open carry laws. Can you talk about what those are and how you see policy affecting uh, gun violence there? This has been the most contentious area in that entire literature is whether relaxing the restrictions on concealed carry is going to increase or reduce the amount of crime and and particularly the amount of violent crime. The argument has raged for 20 years now, and there have been strong cases made on both sides. I think that what we have found in recent years is that Restricting concealed carry is a good thing, and it uh, reduces violent crime. It's too bad that that message comes now because most states have already either completely repealed their restrictions on concealed carry or they've relaxed them to the point where they don't mean much. Mm -hmm. And what about the link between domestic violence and gun violence? So I think this is particularly salient after the Las Vegas attacks. But what has the research shown about those links? The federal restriction on gun possession by people convicted of domestic violence has been carefully evaluated, and it appears to have been very effective in reducing intimate partner homicide with guns. And those homicides were not then replaced with homicides with knives or fists, so that the home has become a safer place as a result of this restriction imposed by the federal government back in 1996. That's a big finding, and it's very important, but it's a broader interest because of the close link between domestic violence and mass shootings. Mm -hmm. Well, why publish this piece now? Are you trying to tell people to trust the data? Are you you calling for more research? What What are some of your goals with writing this? There's several goals. I I think one of them is that I got tired of hearing that there is no funding for gun research as if that meant there was no gun research. (laughs) And and I think that that is completely misleading, despite the lack of federal funding. In fact, there has been a tremendous amount of research that has blossomed in the last few years This is a very active area. It's bringing in some of our best social scientists. And as a result, we are getting a ever better evidence base on which to make policy. And I I think that 
message has simply gotten lost in all of the moaning about lack of federal funding. Uh, mm. As much as, of course, I would like there to be more federal funding, I'd, I think that the most important thing here is to say that there's good work being done and we are learning relevant stuff about what works and also about what does not work. Philip, thanks so much for talking with me. Good talking to you. Philip Cook and colleagues write a policy forum on gun control research this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.